Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Uh, with that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. Thank you for the questions coming from our readers and audience at Smith Weekly, including Michael G., Sean M., Mike P., Dave V., and Cindy W. We have on Ron Thiessen, President, CEO, and Director of Northern Dynasty Minerals, a copper and gold-focused developer that is in process of advancing the Tier 1 Pebble Project in Southwest Alaska. Northern Dynasty is listed on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol NAK and on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol NDM. Ron, it's a pleasure to have you on. Andrew, the pleasure is mine. Thank you. Well, Ron, we have a lot to cover about the fascinating story of Northern Dynasty. Uh, but first, tell us, uh, tell the audience about yourself and the long history you have in the natural resource business. Well, um, yeah, that's a story in and of itself. Um, I've been in the business since about the mid-1980s. I'm a professional accountant, a Canadian CPA, um, but I haven't practiced that for many years. Uh, when I was in public practice, though, I had uh, several mining companies and uh, mining projects as clients, and I guess that was the entree into the into the business. And uh, I initially got started mainly on the uh, corporate development front, uh, the deal making side of the business, the financing side of the business, and I. Um, you know, my first my first bite at the apple apple was a project uh, called Mount Milligan. That uh, between 1986 and 1990, we took from um, a geological prospect to a takeover bid uh, of some 265 million dollars. You know, basically from pennies to 265 million dollars. And uh, I guess that spoiled me. I said, you know, this is a really nice business. Four or five years, and and you can you can make that happen. Um, there were many intervening, uh, obviously, uh, events. I joined a group called Hunter Dickinson in, in 1994 as uh, VP Corporate Development. And, and interestingly enough, one of the, the first um, jobs that they gave me, that Bob Dickinson gave me, was to go and see if I could do a deal with Kamenko on a project called Pebble, which was located, like you said, in southwest Alaska. And it became a, a bit of a, a game of cat and mouse. He said, do you know anybody at Kamenko? Yeah, I know the Kamenko guys. So I phoned them up. And, and literally every year I would call the Kamenko exploration team because it was an exploration project at the time and, and ask them if they were interested in talking about a divestiture of that, us buying it. And they said, yeah, we'd love to do that. Let's go for lunch and, and uh, talk about uh, Pebble. We would go for lunch. I would pay for lunch. I'd, I'd say, no. You know, can we get down to business? Said, no, no, we're not interested in selling it this year. So it just became a process of, I felt, me buying them lunch. Well, um, you know, things do change, and uh, nuclear winter came to the uh, the mineral sector in 1998. I remember copper went to about 61, 62 cents. Gold went as deep as about 250 dollars per ounce. I think zinc was 28 cents. And Kamenko finally relented in 2001, 2002, and, and we were able to to acquire the project at that point in time, um, albeit at the bottom of the market, like I said, nuclear winter. And uh, 
I remember I remember a lot of people saying, you know, copper was at 62 cents, saying, you know, copper will never see a dollar again. But it's a very cyclical business, and if if one of the things I've learned is that uh, you got to be a bit like uh, the sage of of uh, Omaha, and that you have to be a contrarian when when everybody says something's not going to happen, you can rest assured that that it will happen, and you know. Lo and behold, 2004 rolled around, and and we entered uh, the up leg, and and a bull market ensued out of that nuclear winter, and we were sitting on pebble, and that's basically the story, you know, in some substance, how I got involved in in the pebble project. It's turned into an extremely unique project. Uh, a lot of people, I've been on it, obviously. For many years, you know, we've owned it, controlled it since 2002. Um, but like I said, I had, a, you know, an eight-year legacy on it before that. Um, people say, aren't you tired of this project? I go, are you kidding me? I mean, a, Pebble, a project like Pebble, it, it probably happens to one in 10,000 geologists. And, and while I'm not a geologist, my partners are, are geologists and engineers, and, and I just know their views and how they look at these things this is a project that that is it's one in ten lifetimes not one in one lifetime and it's going to be built there is no question that it's a mine that will be built it's just too important it's too important to the state of alaska it's too important to the u.s it's too important to the industry and it's too important to to um, the world in terms of of its ability to provide um uh, copper wire, which is basically what electrons travel on, and, and our industrial world uh, relies on electricity, and it has to have a massive amount of, of uh, copper wire. And we're we're going right. into a period of, of phenomenal um, growth in in electrical consumption. So we need a lot more copper than than we produced in past. Right, and it's been a long it's been a long road, uh, you know, since since acquisition to 2019. Here we are, 17 years in, and after your successes at Mount Milligan, uh, uh, Thompson Creek, and and the and the so forth that happened there, and your your taste of how quick can things can move. This one certainly took in some time, but it is a a giant project, and and uh, you picked it's it so up. Much, a, yeah, it's so much bigger than all the rest of those. Even you put all the rest of those mines together. Mount Milligan, Kames, Campo Morado, Jatongman, um, you know, Casino. Right. We had a dozen, but Pebble stands all alone. And uh, interesting how, how you guys came across it and, and who ended up uh, selling it off. It's uh, good stuff. So, um, Ron, moving till today, uh, where are we today in the natural resource cycle? What do you think needs to change in this business for people to have a more positive awareness and true understanding of the necessity of the mining business on a global stage? Well, I th I think, you know, almost everything is set for a tremendous bull market in, in the metals. They, the, the various physical exchanges, uh, Shanghai, London, Chicago, have their lowest physical inventory since, I don't know, 2002. Um, a lot of the financial traders, hedge funds and the likes, are out of the market. So we're not seeing, you know, a lot of market manipulation by, by financial players. 
and we can see all this tremendous growth on the horizon from demand for um, higher needs for electricity. Therefore, that automatically converts into into greater needs for um, copper wire. I mean, simply the automobiles. I mean, if we if if you believe 50% of of the prognostications about about what's going to happen with with the automobile, I mean, a standard car has you know 50 pounds of of uh, copper in it a hybrid about 75 80 you know a regular tesla 135 but a four-wheel drive tesla or four-wheel drive um, uh, electric car has 235 pounds of copper so just automobiles alone and 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 what do we sell you know know, 60 70 million automobiles a year Um, never mind all of the other industrial applications so all of those things i think are ripe um plus our historical big tier one mines are coming off peak production. I mean, if you look at at, uh, Escondida, um, the owners of Escondida invested about $7 billion in about 160, 180,000 ton a day concentrating capacity to simply stand still. Their grades have fallen, so they need to double their capacity just to produce what they were producing in past. Uh, Chuki Kamada, one of the largest mines in the world, is going from open pit to underground. That transition takes 10 years, and they'll produce less. Grasberg, the same thing. So we're seeing, you know, declining production and increasing demand. What's holding us right. back? Well, um, probably trade anxieties. You know, I mean, everybody has been so focused on China, and China is the engine for all of this this growth. China consumes 50% of all the copper produced in the world today. Um, yes, 50% goes in. Where there's a disconnect is at least half of what China consume or buys, takes into the country, actually is then exported uh, to the rest of the world. So all of all of your appliances, I mean, I'm going to say almost all the appliances that we consume in the West are, are manufactured in Asia. Many of the electronic circuits for automobiles and the like. So there, there's a lot of raw copper goes into China, but a lot of it comes out in the form of finished goods. China has become the manufacturing plant for the Western world, and and that's one of the reasons why we haven't had inflation for the last two decades is because the low-wage environment and, and the way China, you know, got all of that manufacturing in. Now, the, the downside to that is the West has lost a lot of manufacturing jobs, and so... Um, our concern is our unemployment levels, our high-paying jobs. How are we going to deal with this? And and so we've had these huge trade imbalances between China and the rest of the world, and that's now coming to play. And you're, you're seeing it most out of the U.S. and uh, with with the threat of, of the threat of massive trade tariffs, but the 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 imposition of some trade tariffs. I mean. 200 billion worth of trade tariffs. I mean, to tell you the truth, if you if you look at the U.S. economy, which is a, I believe a four trillion dollar economy, um, and and the Chinese economy, it's not nearly as drastic as what people assume. They just they just are out there with, you know, like everything else, over uh, emphasizing the the impacts on everything. So the near term. Uh, situation is, I think, revolves around a resolution on trade. If we get a resolution, especially between China and the U.S., on uh, on future trade, then um, 
all bets are off. Then we go back and we focus on the physical nature of the market and we go, holy cow, this thing is is really imbalanced in terms of our de- our needs, our demands, and our supply. Um, and right. I I can't give you a prognostication, but you know I, I'm generally of the view that 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 sane heads do prevail uh, in in these situations. It's important for everybody, and and I think I think the U.S. government, and I think Mr. Trump and himself, he's anxious to have a trade deal. And I think I think yeah. the Chinese are also anxious to have a trade deal. And it's not unusual that sometimes you know people have to be poked in the eye before they'll sit up and and take everything seriously. So, but it it looks like there's some pretty decent green shoots on the horizon with respect to uh, you know getting to terms on on a trade deal. So we shall see. It's relatively short term. We're going to know, I believe, in the next you know. Uh, three to uh, to six months on 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 this, and then we'll get back to where are we really in in this metal cycle? Because we should be on an up leg, and this should be another one of these long decade long up legs, where I think all the metals are going to make new highs. Right. Yeah, and I I think that the demand side is there, regardless of the short term politics. If you look at some of the Chinese government policies, mandates towards electric vehicles, and of course other other rollouts of electric vehicles across the globe. Um, whether it's a a BMW and the European automakers getting into the business substantially to compete with maybe some of the U.S. automakers, um, and then also just just as you said, a lot of these big mines are coming off. Uh, you mentioned Freeport's Grassberg, which has gone from strong hands to shaky hands. Uh, more of a blended approach with government involved, which uh, can can become a problem in those types of jurisdictions. Uh, yeah. Plus, going from an open pit operation to a complex underground block caving operation, um, right? You know, which is going to be smaller in terms of its its total throughput. In the near term, it's probably you're probably going to see production, you know, off by 25 to 45 percent as they make that transition. You'll see the same at at Codelco's Chuki Kamata. Right. And those are two of the yeah, largest so think, mines in the world. Absolutely. And I, I think that there is a, uh, a substantial uh, supply issue disruption coming up, uh, maybe not 2019-2020, but certainly post-2021-22, you start to run into some serious uh, some issues. So it'll be uh, interesting to watch how things kind of play out across the board. So you mentioned a little while ago, you mentioned HDI. Can you just tell us kind of the, the group of companies there a little bit, just just briefly? Sure. HDI stands for Hunter Dickinson Inc. The two founders, Bob Hunter, Bob Dickinson. Um, Bob Hunter's passed away. Bob Dickinson is still here. Bob Hunter was, you know, a financial guy, and Bob Dickinson, a technical geologist. Uh, we used to affectionately call it the two Bobs. Um, and and it, for all intents and purposes, it's an incubator of the resource business. It's a private company. There's six of us that, that control the company. Um, partners, if you will, and, and it simply houses what I call the intellectual capacity and, and the abilities to, to, to provide the, the knowledge and the work on these various companies. And so uh, the way we work is not that different than what they have in the technology business, the technology side of the industry with angel investors and, and, um, and incubators. We, we acquire assets generally on at a 
private stage. We put them in a company. We we seed that company with a bit of capital from ourselves and, and some of our long-term investors. And we take it along until we, we believe that we have a, a viable project uh, for the capital markets. And then we float it either by an IPO or an RTO. And, and that company then you know, relies on the services of Hunter Dickinson to to obtain staff, to obtain uh, engineering services, technical services. I mean, HDI has everything that you would find in a major mining company. I mean, we have our, our own capacity even to do printing. We have our own environmental scientists. Uh, you know, much of it are management level people, so we'll build right. out an exploration team and manage that exploration. And the, and the unique thing about HDI, which a lot of people don't appreciate, is is you know I come from a professional industry where you you make money by the hour, and I left that industry because I said you know that's not a way to get really wealthy. The way to get really wealthy is capital returns. You know you buy a stock for you know a seed stock for ten or twenty cents or fifty cents, and it turns into be five bucks or ten bucks or twenty bucks. Um, you can't do that by the hour. So Hunter Dickinson is not a professional services firm where where we're making money by the hour. Our objective at HDI is fundamentally to break even. We provide these services to to all of the companies in the group um, on a, on a cost recovery basis. We want the value creation not in HDI because that's just by the hour. We want the value creation at the asset level in the companies. And so, you know, historically, we've had companies like Farallon, Tosico, Detour, um, uh, Pacific Sentinel Gold, um, Continental Gold, Continental Minerals, um, Great Basin Gold. Uh, a lot of different companies have come and gone. And and people say, well, you know, they stay. And, and you know, our objective is, you know, if if we can take that company and that asset to a point for a takeover bid like we did with Continental Minerals and Continental Gold and Farallon um, and others, then it's an exit, it's gone, and we can start up a new company and a new project. Right. That does not, it doesn't always turn out that way. Sometimes you have to make the decision that, okay, we can joint venture it, and, and then we'll bring in a partner, and with that partner, we'll develop a management team to look after that. Our people will come back and we'll go to the next project. Or if if the mine needs to be built as a as a standalone, we'll do the same thing, and that's what happened with D2 Gold. We brought in an, in a management team that was independent of Hunter Dickinson to to be solely focused on the construction, development, and operation of that mine. And then typically those companies go in, independent of Hunter Dickinson. And again, our people come back to us, and we start it all over again. Right. No, that sounds sounds great, and uh, certainly a, a long-standing uh, group, and uh, certainly has a, a history and, and a track record of success. So I appreciate the uh, the summary on that. So, so Ron, we we often compare difficulties of jurisdictions globally. Often, where a politically unstable or unsafe jurisdiction might be a place of red flags, we often refer to the opposite end of this jurisdictional spectrum as a safe, stable, and often unreasonable jurisdiction that has a lot of red tape. So where a civil war or a greedy government might hurt a project, so can a tweet or a press release from an agency state government or an environmental group. Two companies who illustrate this truth quite well is Ivan O. Mines and Northern Dynasty. 
So tell the audience about your resolve, your motivation, tier one assets developed regardless of headwinds of red flags and red tape. Yeah, I, I agree. Geopolitical risk comes in many forms. And uh, as you pointed out, uh, there can be civil wars, there can be you know physical elements, uh, there can be laws and statutes, um, and there can be rogue elements as well. And uh, But at the end of the day, uh, what I like to focus on is is the rule of law. Is there an established respect for the rule of law? And what is the long term? Because when you're looking at, at assets like Robert Scott and Ivanhoe or Northern Dynasty, you're talking about assets that are going to be multi-generational, not just 10, 20 years, but probably 50 years. I mean, you know, the Pebble Project as it stands, if it were to mine the entire project out at the proposed processing rate, would, would probably be, you know, well over 100 years, maybe even 200 years. Um, so you have to take a look at that and say, how do we ensure the long-term viability of this? What is the the stability of this country historically? And are there any examples? My favorite example is Bingham Canyon. I mean, there was a, a project in, in the 1880s that was started up by Colonel Kennecott. And, and you know, he started Kennecott Copper Corporation. The mineral rights were put into, into uh, Kennecott uh, Mineral Corporation. And they're still owned and operated today, you know, 140, 150 years later by the same company. So that's the stability of ownership that we're kind of looking for. And that's what we see in in United States, we see it in, in North America in particular. A challenge with third world jurisdictions, uh, I find, is is that those things change too frequently. There's too much pressure on ownership. It's easier typically to get your your licenses, your your right to build a mine and operate, but um, ownership tends to be a bit capricious. Um, and so you need to address things differently. I mean, uh, listen, Robert's got some fabulous assets. Those uh, two uh, projects he's got in uh, in uh, DRC and the project he's got in South Africa are all world-class assets, no question. Um, you know, he's just going to have to find partners who are capable of dealing with, you know, the DRC government and the issues around that. And, and again, in the third world, you've got governments that have a great deal of pressure on them monetarily and and they need to raise taxes so tax regimes royalty regimes ownership interests all changing and and I also like to say you know if if government has a direct ownership i mean if you take mongolia or or indonesia how effective are they at at really um being a regulator in terms of health safety and environment i mean their their objective is is number one objective is, is probably profitability and cash flow and how well can they do the business of of being the regulator. So again, I go back, North America, United States in particular, is probably the best example of a, of a regulatory regime that, that, you know, once you're up and operating is unbiased and you get the best results. Yes, we've had our challenges getting a permit in North America is the biggest challenge you face. You've got to go through um, some of the most st 
strenuous and stringent environmental standards. But you know, once you've done that, and, and you know, because of the rule of law, and I've always felt this, I mean, I, you know, I said, as much as we've been attacked, ultimately we can win this because the rule of law is on our side. Yes, bureaucrats can become rogue, but if you have the, the willpower to stay with it, those rogue elements, because they used the completely inappropriate process. I mean, when we were in our darkest days, we knew that, that the EPA couldn't go to court and be successful. That at the end of the day, their only, their only salvation was to bankrupt us. And as long as we weren't bankrupt, we would win the day. Right. No, that's a good point. Good point, and I appreciate your views on on both sides. Whether we're talking about a place in Africa or or here in the states or in, even in Canada. Um, so so we're, we're going to talk about the EPA in a moment. But the bulk of the audience kind of knows about Northern Dynasty, knows the story for the most part. So we'll leave out some of the basics. But uh, you mentioned bankruptcy. What is the company doing at this point to keep costs lean and low while it goes through this extended permitted? permitting and and study uh, period that could last for the next three to four years. So what level of cash do you have now and what types of financing methods can we see going forward to the finish line? So, I mean, uh, just to revisit some of this, the kinds of deals we've done in in past with majors, I mean, first of all, we started off the the classic way, raising money in the capital markets. Uh, We quickly found out that this was the size and scale of a project that was going to take a lot more money than, than was available to junior resource companies in the capital markets. Uh, right. I mean, we raised about $50 million ourselves through a couple, three years in the capital markets. Rio then came in with a with effectively about a $90, $100 million financing in 2006. But even then, we said it's it's far bigger than that. We did the deal with Anglo, which was $1.5 billion of funding that they had to put in to vest at a 50% interest in the asset on what's called an all-or-none basis. They got to about $575 million and ran into uh, financial issues of their own. And, you know, a lot of people said, well, Anglo left. The reality is Anglo didn't 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 walk away for, for technical or those kinds of reasons. The asset became ours 100%. And and we went back to to finding a new partner. Now there was a period there for about three years where we ended up litigating with with the EPA, and we had to return to capital markets. We had a strong shareholder base and people who saw the asset for what it was and said, you know, let's keep this thing alive. Let's keep it moving ahead. We we were able to do that. We were able to bring that litigation to a closure with a settlement agreement with the EPA in May of 2017 and then uh, start the permitting process, you know, December 2017, January 2018. At that point, we, we, we were about to start in the fall of 2017 with a process to look at a new partner and, and we were approached by First Quantum um, about what could we do to, to fundamentally preempt a process, not go looking at all the other companies, but what could they do with us? And so we ended up with what was called the framework agreement, and they funded us with $37.5 million, which bought them an option to enter into a $1.5 billion deal, almost identical to the to the Anglo deal. 
and and again um, they had a time period during which they could do work and and uh, make a final decision on that that option. Uh, we extended it twice, and and that 37.5 billion that they put in, um, we used that for um, the permitting money for 2018, and we continue to have money off of that. Um, at the end of the year, we we had a um, a bonus structure that was owing to the lawyers uh, related back to the to the litigation and the settlement agreement. We financed that in the capital markets with some some strong shareholders, and now we are looking to repartner again. and And we've had offers of financing. Uh, we haven't taken any. We're we're waiting for the draft EIS to come out so that we've actually got a document that says this is what the permitting process is going to look like. This is this is how we've evaluated the project that you've put in. And, and typically the draft EIS, I would say, um, it tells you what they're going to allow you to do. And so it's an extremely important document for the major mining companies to have in hand in talking about participating in the Pebble project. So the number one objective is, is to repartner going forward. Will we, from time to time, have to raise money in capital markets? Uh, we might. Um, again, I own a big position in this company, and and all dilution is very painful to me. Um, I, you know, I don't like doing it. Um, I participate when I can, uh, but even that has its constraints. So, right now, as we're 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 not spending a great deal of money because we've finished the, the initial review and the Army Corps of Engineers and ACOM, their engineering um, contractor, are finalizing the draft EIS. So we're basically on hold. And the great thing about the relationship with Hunter Dickinson is when Pebble and NDM don't need services from Hunter Dickinson, they aren't paying large overheads or carrying costs of, of having those people around. Um, right. You know, we've got a relatively small team in Alaska, and so the cost of carrying that is is not too too high. So again, you know, uh, I I know that all the shareholders or everybody wants me to say something definitive on repartnering. When exactly will happen? It's a negotiation. I'm one side of it. If I was two sides of it, I'd be able to do that. So um, <laughs> it's it's right. it's a it's it's our objective. Um, this isn't my first rodeo at this. I know what Pebble represents, and I know how important Pebble is to every one of the major mining companies out there. Yes, they've got anxiety over or have had anxiety over the issues with the EPA and, and the U.S. federal government, but those are behind us, and you know, they come in and take a look at what we're doing. Yes, the fishery is is a... A big concern, but we are extremely confident, and every one of the mining companies that comes in looks at it, looks at the right. same thing. This mine can be built, and that fishery not affected. In fact, that that fishery, if they want it, can be enhanced, mainly financially by bringing infrastructure and lowering the costs of of processing fish out there, which would benefit everybody. But even right. uh, I would say environmentally by by taking opportunities that exist in western Alaska 
to improve environmental conditions to enhance the fishery. Right. Yeah, and, and we'll, we'll get to a couple of those discussions here in a moment because um, you brought up a number of points. But, you know, bless, bless the partners' hearts, uh, you know, the ones that came in, the, you know, the, uh, the Rios and the, the Anglos and the first Quantums, they all contributed to a project that is still here and still viable. And uh, yep. so, so there's, there's some thanks that goes out with their, with their financing. And, um, you know, it's, it's worked out to be quite, quite good across the board, in my view, on it. And the other thing that folks seem to just forget about is the sector is cyclical. How many times have we seen big mining companies sell off assets to stay alive? I mean, we've seen, I mean, I, just one example that comes to mind. I mean, you know, Gold Corps sold off Los Filos to, to, to Lee Gold uh, at the bottom. Uh, we've seen, I, I can, there's a number of examples of companies selling off assets uh, to survive during bear markets. So I completely understand why some people walk away. Yeah, I was at the Mining Hall of Fame dinner last week, and one of the guys that was inducted is Jim Gill. I'll, that was Oil Resources. Oil Resources bought Kubratavanka from from uh, Tech Kamenko in I think it was 2001, 2002, about the same time as we bought, um, or maybe it was a little later than that, that we bought uh, Pebble, and I think they paid right. 250 million dollars for it. And in 2007 or 2008, Tech bought it back for four billion. You know. That's the kind of stuff that happens. It's cyclical business, you know. Yeah. The big mining companies, the best. Don't want to let all the cats out of the bag, but one of the best places to go shopping for great assets is in the portfolio of big mining companies. They do great work. They have a tremendous amount of of projects. They can't work on all of them, and they they change flavor. I mean, one day they love the project, and the next day, well, it's on the back burner. And if you can go find ones that are on the back burner that have, you know, some geological prospectivity, you can usually cut a deal with them because they look at it as found money. And you can usually get pretty good numbers. I mean, we bought Pebble for $14 million paid over six years. The the payment terms were 200000 every six months. <laughs> By the time we had to make the balloon payment in the last year of $10 million, Rio had already invested a hundred million, and, and, and Anglo was putting their first money in in August of 2007. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, another one I can think of in the in the bottom, just because I know it a little bit, the uranium business at, at the bottom in, in 2000 2001, Paladin picks up a a, a historic asset uh, in uh, Namibia for uh, absolutely fifteen twenty thousand uh, dollars Australian, and, and turns it into a multi billion dollar mining operation. So. Uh, this stuff happens all the time, so people got to keep it in mind and keep it in context. Um, so the uh, and the, it's a win-win for both is, parties because you know it is found money yeah. for the majors, and and they aren't doing anything with it. And I think it it it. I mean, I've I've had discussions with majors that you know this this you own this asset, you're not doing anything with it. It's it'll be good for the people that are around it, and it'll be good for the the state or company that'll that'll benefit from it. I mean. Our Florence right. asset in in uh, Tosico is precisely that. I mean, BHP and prior owners had spent 165 million dollars on it, owned all of the the information on it, which they provided to us, because they said that's a project that should go into production. It's just not a BHP project. Right, and, and the moral of the story is is to have cash at the bottom, and that's yeah. 
<laughs> that's that's the deal. So, uh, yeah, no, it's very interesting, Ron. Um, so, so the project back to Pebble, it's been scaled down substantially to get off the ground. So, give us some highlights of the new design, the benefits, and give us the uh, the mine parameters in terms of total capex to production, and uh, if you can share with us the the all-in sustaining costs under the smaller mine footprint, if you have some information to share. We need to see what the Army Corps of Engineers is going to um, allow us to build. So the draft EIS is going to be a, a really important document because maybe off of the back of the draft EIS we can we can start to make some some uh, more definitive decisions about some elements of the project. But fundamentally, we went into permitting with a project um, that you know kind of parameters that the industry uses our you know, um, daily throughput of the concentrator, and, and this one is 180,000 uh, short tons, so that's, that's like 160,000 metric tons um, a day. So th the throughput on, on it is not small. I mean, it's, it's twice the size of, of Gibraltar, if you will. Um, and so Gibraltar is the second largest mine in Canada. The, the key to it is, is how we operate that project and, and really the key was um, Tom Collier who is the CEO of Pebble Inland Partnership and Tom came in just at the time that the EPA ramped up its its uh, its, its initiatives against Pebble on a preemptive uh, veto determination which they did later modify to just uh, limiting uh, production parameters but, but Tom said listen fundamentally the EPA has has set out some some guidelines that they would consider, not saying that they would permit, because first of all, they can't permit it, it's the Army Corps of Engineers that's permitting, but that they would consider um, participating in a permitting process um, if if the mine itself was about, I think it was 4.6 or 4.8 square miles in totality, it, it affected less than, than 10 miles of, of river streams and, and, and things like that. And Tom said, you know, what we should be looking at is, is developing a mine that meets the kind of footprint requirements that, that the EPA set out. I mean, mines by their nature change over their lifetime. And, and, you know, Tom said, you know, if we could build a mine that was, was um, amenable to everybody so that we could build it and operate it and establish our credentials, or if you like the term, earn our social license, have people working, have the communities collecting taxes, and everybody's getting a benefit so that they know what's in it for me. Because right now, as, as a project, you know, they only see uh, downside and no upside. They're not feeling the upside. I mean, they, they say, okay, well, a job, but it's, you know, when and how, and I'm not really getting a paycheck. Once it's in production, once it's in operation, they actually feel what's in it for me. And if at that point in time, you want to extend its mine life, you want to change its parameters, that's when you could consider doing things like that. And of course, you'd have to repermit many aspects of it. But the key is to look at it and try and, and build something that people are comfortable for. So we went back to the drawing boards and we said, how, how do we make this mine have a smaller footprint um, for the first reasonable economic life? And, and so we came up with this 180,000 ton a day concentrator that, that has a footprint of about 
you know, five and a half, five point eight square miles. Um, we we put in in advance water treatment plants because that's the big issue. You know, if you have to discharge water, because you know, unlike cities and, and other areas that you know have atmospheric water, rainwater, snow melt fall on them and they just discharge them into the environment. A mine has to collect all the water that comes onto the site, whether it's rain, snow melt, and has to store that water in perpetuity unless it gets a permit to discharge it. And and getting a permit to discharge it is a question of what's the water quality. Well, let's take that question off the table. Let's preempt that whole process by saying we will build water treatment plants. So you just tell us what level of quality you want and and we will do that. That will allow us to discharge water, and, and that'll do a couple of things. First of all, we can discharge water at key times of the year to enhance water flows in, in, in streams and, and fish creeks, and um, we will eliminate the issue around excessive water storage, which cre- that's what creates the Mount Paulys and the Samarcos of the world, is because those tailing storage facilities are meant to store sand, not water. So let's do a bunch of these things. Let's let's upgrade our seismic um, issues beyond what we think is is standard engineering terms. Let's improve the the um, the uh, embankments, both the angle of repose and reinforcing on the embankment. Let's not have um, waste piles sitting on wetlands. Let's process everything in the pit through the mill and put the waste in the waste tailing storage facilities, thereby reducing the footprint. Let's look at infrastructure, so road port and power, in a way that also minimizes its footprint on wetlands, because that's where the EPA and the Army Corps of Engineers' main authority lies on wetlands. So we came up with three alternate structures for we came up with with the lake ferry, which minimizes the amount of wetlands you're disturbing, and it also provides a uh, facilities for crossing the lake. So we we went through all of this. The upshot of it is, it's been optimized for permitting and people's comfort and level of operation. It does not. I mean, some of our gold is contained in pyrite. And typically, you would need a cyanide circuit uh, for that. And many mines have cyanide circuits. In fact, you know, Kinross's mine in, in Alaska is a, is, a, is a 100% cyanide circuit, as would Donlin be a cyanide right. circuit. But Tom said, listen, let's, let's <laughs> again, people have a mental image, a, a mental thing about, about cyanide. Let's not use it. Let's just say, okay, we'll take the cyanide circuit out. We'll leave it. We'll leave it aside. And in future, if people want us to recover more gold, because that enhances the value for taxation, it enhances the the royalties for the um, for the state of Alaska, and it will enhance the returns that will come. We'll look at it then, and maybe by then, right. the luxivient that you use for recovering gold out of pyrite will no longer be cyanide. It'll be something else. I mean, there's lots of work going on there now and I can see in the next three to five years us having a, a different completely different um, chemical for for um, recovering uh, gold out of cyanide so these are the kinds of things that we did 
and when you when you look at, at the, the production volumes, I mean, you know, it's it's a Cobra de Panama type of development. And so people say, well, yeah, what what are the actual economics? I say, well, you know, we even though you know I've internally done some work on this, but again, we haven't selected which transportation infrastructure we haven't selected port facilities we haven't selected the power facilities and those kinds right. of things so there's there's too many variables to become extremely definitive at this point once we get those okay. variables locked down with the army corps of engineers yes then we're going to go out and do these studies but if people want to know you know ballpark numbers just take a look at cobra de panama it's a 220,000 metric ton a day operation you know I think, I think the capex is 6.2 billion dollars. Well, we're 160,000 ton a day. Our numbers aren't that different because it's the same type of operation. It's a open pit, copper gold pour free, same kind of technology, crush, grind, float, produce concentrates, remote site, you need a road, you need power, you need a port. Right. You know, uh economic problems. Give us a mental image of the economic problems that exist in the communities of Southwest Alaska, and what is Northern Dynasty doing to gain the hearts and minds of the community members and local leaders? No problem. I mean, it's 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 a wonderful region. Um, it is, I'll say, bifurcated. You know, and, and I want to preface this by saying I'm not I'm not trying to usurp the the opinions and authority or of of the local residents. They're 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 more observations and and. Also, many, many long discussions with with people in the region, but you've got, you know, basically two groups of communities. You have the communities on the coast that that really are commercial fishing oriented predominantly, and they're the you know kind of 110 to to a couple hundred miles away from the project site, and then you've got the communities interior. Now they when in the interior they're predominantly on the lake. And so because there's no uh, transportation, there's no roads in western Alaska to speak of. And, and um, so the people on the lakes tend not to work in the commercial fisheries. Um, in, in addition, the commercial fisheries operating at the same time as sustenance fishing is. So you, you get people on the lakes that are more focused on on their sustenance fishing. There's not really any industry there. There are some um, fishing lodges that are for sport fishing or sport hunting. They're very limited. Their season is typically two to three months maximum. So job availability is is almost non-existent. And again, I'm not trying to denigrate anybody. I'm just saying that, you know, the opportunity for um, these communities to thrive. I mean, right now they're struggling. You know, um, the outmigration of people from from that area is pretty significant because they're they don't have jobs and and they want the same thing as everybody else does. I mean, when they go hunting for sustenance or when they go fishing, they use boats with motors. They use gasoline. They use rifles. They use bullets. They use snow machines. Gas costs six to eight dollars a gallon in the area. Nothing gets driven out. Everything gets flown out in transport planes. Even the commercial fishery, while while power is subsidized to the 
the residents of the coastal communities and, and the interior commercial enterprises don't get don't get subsidies. So, you know, it costs a fish processing plant sixty to eighty cents a kilowatt hour for power. You know, and 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 I have a bit of old history in the area back in the nineteen eighties when I was, you know, a professional accountant. One of my clients was one of the biggest fish processing companies in in Western North America, headquartered in Vancouver, um, um, BC Packers, and they had facilities in Western Alaska, but it was a very small processing plant. It was mainly a fish buying location, and they bought fish in Naknak and Dillingham and and, uh, and and different villages out there, and would fly that. Those those raw fish, fresh fish, from Western Alaska to Prince Rupert to process them in in a very large industrial processing plant there because energy costs were, you know, one two cents a kilowatt hour in the 1970s 1980s, and it's still right. the same today. I mean, there, there's a treaty now that doesn't allow that, but there still is fish going back and forth, um, which should be processed out there. I think also if you if you would bring energy to the coastal communities at eight to ten cents a kilowatt hour i think you you could change the the nature of the product I and mean, it's still fish don't get me wrong but instead of maybe producing most of the fish as canned fish you could you could fillet it flash freeze it and it becomes right. sushi grade i mean that sockeye salmon sockeye salmon by the way is the number one sushi grade fish in the world and, and sockeye salmon at Skiji Market sells for thirteen to fifteen bucks a pound wholesale, and right. you know there's no way they're getting that for canned fish, and so that 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 additional margin could be felt through the entire chain of the fishermen, the fish buyers, the fish processors, and the marketing companies, and I think you you open up new markets. I mean, a, a fish that's purchased in Bristol Bay usually commands a price that's about a third of what that same fish is in southeast Alaska. And it's simply the infrastructure to handle the product. Now, when we go back to the interior communities and our, our working relationships with them, we have joint ventures with most of the villages in the area. Some villages work together. Um, and and those those joint ventures and Pebble were the largest when we were in exploration. We were the largest employers in Western Alaska, which says something. An exploration project is the largest employer. There's about 7,500 people live in 50,000 square miles. So, you know, the population is very spread out. The biggest community is Dillingham with 2,500 people. Most of the villages on the lake, the biggest villages is uh, uh, New Halen, which is about 200 people. Most of the villages are about 100, 125, and some are as small as 25. The other thing is that when when your school village has less than 10 students, you lose state funding for the teachers and, and the other stuff. And so th- the kids need to go to school, so they have to go to a school in a different village, which means that the parents have to move, which means the village dies. And, and, right. and a lot of people are, are looking to try and stay in the region, well, a project like Pebble would be an unbelievable anchor for for employment. I mean, there will be more jobs at Pebble than employable people exist 
in Western Alaska. So I tell people, if you want a job and are prepared to train, train for a job, you got a job. There's about 1,800 people live in 22 villages in the Lake and Penn Borough, which is the, the taxing borough that we're in. And, you know, I mean, some, some employment stats, I think, you know, of the employable age people, roughly 35% have jobs. Most of those are, in effect, government jobs. They're, they're jobs for the Lake and Penn Borough, they're jobs for the state, or they're jobs for the, the village corporation. And, and probably half those jobs are not full-time jobs. So there just isn't the opportunity in the region. We bring Pebble on stream. I mean, during construction, there'll be over 2,200 people, probably as maybe as many as 3,000 people working on the Pebble project on various aspects, the main mining facilities, and then the port, the power generation, and the rest. And, and long-term, it's going to have probably something in the order of 1,200 to 1,300 employees. Well, out of an 1,800 base population, you've probably got six or 700 people who are employment age. I mean, we need twice as many people. And and the question, and, and the wages will be in today's context, the wages are $100,000 to $120,000 a year. Um, I, I don't know of any jobs in Western Alaska that, that pay that kind of money. So they, they can right. actually support themselves, support their family, the communities could grow. I mean, I look at Williams Lake as an example, where we we operate the Gibraltar mine, you know, and and uh, the Gibraltar mine has about um, 600, a little over 600 employees. They're making about the same, about 120,000, but in Canadian dollars, and we produce you know, about 135 million pounds of copper. I mean, we spend you know 125, 145 million dollars a year in those communities, that in that community, in Williams Lake. You know, it's got a population of about 25,000 people. That much money spent in that community, you know, people can live well. It's a right. thriving community. And and we give, we give preference to people who are prepared to live in the region and live in the communities. You know, and, right. and ultimately Pebble will have roads into the site from the north shore of the lake. So communities like... New Halen and Iliamna uh, will have road access into Pebble. If there's any if there's any third world state in the United States, it's Alaska, and and this particular region uh, is you can't make it up on tourism or uh, you know some fishing operations. Um, these these places, the infrastructure comes, the business comes when. A, when a project of this size and scale comes in is able to produce power, roads, infrastructure, jobs, jobs create money. And then, of course, it just goes down from there. And so I think it's important, and I think you did a great job of putting together a perspective for people to understand the true uh, situation that's occurring there, because I think so many people fail to realize what is really happening there. And, and another thing that you mentioned, you mentioned the the power cost per kilowatt hour um, at, to, to process fish at a facility, a local facility there versus back in Canada. And I think that, and also you also made reference to the years, Ron, of, of when that, of when that occurred versus today, nothing has changed. And we're talking about a span of, of, uh, 20, 30 years or more. And, yeah. uh, nothing, nothing has changed. 
And so I think people need to keep that in mind. And so, so lastly, with this, give us give us a mental image of kind of the basin that the Pebble Project is in. Kind of kind of give us the distance from from Bristol Bay. Give us give us the true. Uh, I've seen some pictures, and it's not it's not it's not full of rivers and fish and 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 and, and wildlife. It, it's very uh, kind of a barren basin. Kind of give us give us a perspective on that. Well, Western Alaska is is uh, very different than the rest of Alaska. Western Alaska really, um, I won't say suffered, but but was affected by by the ice ages. Uh, what were mountains uh, have basically been planed off. Uh, there was six to ten thousand feet of ice that was was over top of of this region, so it's it's rolling. It's relatively flat. It is for the most part, again, treeless. The the valley that Pebble sits in um, is probably about twenty twenty five square miles. It's it's very flat. It's gentle. It's about um, eight hundred feet above sea level. Other than spring melt, there really is no running water in that valley. Uh, so um, there is a, a small lake. There are ponds in the valley, but those those ponds are not. It's not because of running water. It's because when the glaciers melted, the fine ground up rock that was in the glacier formed clays, and as the as the glacier melted, those clays settled in little basins in 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 the valley floor and so because it's clay it holds water i mean if you were to go punch a hole in the bottom of it would probably drain through the rock but there's there's a bunch of these little ponds and and there's something called frying pan lake which again is is very similar it's a very shallow lake it's uh you know you can walk across it in in hip waders um it there's there's really no fish habitat spawning habitat i mean when fish come that far inland they're looking for spawning habitat there isn't really any spawning habitat in that valley because you can't get to the valley the the freshet ends uh in june and spawning starts in late july in fact the the outlet from the valley that pebble sits in is to the south through Frying Pan Lake down into what's called South Fork Cocktooley. And the first five, six miles of South Fork Cocktooley after the end of the valley during spawning season are dry. So, I mean, you know, you don't have fish coming up that high. And and in terms of its proximity to the commercial fishery, it's at least 100 miles away to the nearest point of of uh, Bristol Bay. So it's it's a... It's a long ways away. And then on top of that, there's eight different watersheds. We're we're in one watershed. That's the other thing is, you know, Pebble East and Pebble Far East are in, in what's called the Talaric. The main valley is of that Pebble sits in the deposit. It's in the in the uh, upland part of the South Fork Cocktooley and the Tailings Storage Facility is in the in the upland part of the North Fork Cocktooley. And people go, oh, yeah, but they're in the in the upper drainages. Well, that's where the least amount of water is. There's there's the water only. There's snow that accumulates in winter time, and when it melts, yes, it runs and flows out. But after the melt's done by June, there's no more running water in that in in those areas because they're so far inland. They're in the upper reaches of these. It's not like we're down 
you know, in the lower reaches down by a river or something like that. And there's eight different watersheds. And, and, and the, the main watershed we're in, the Nushagak Mulchatna, which is where the Coctulis are, is the least productive for sockeye salmon because there's, there's virtually no lakes and sockeye need lakes for spawning and rearing. I mean, it, 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 it's large in aerial space, but it's got no lakes in it. I mean, they're the, the, uh, the, some of the other watersheds are the key watersheds for sockeye salmon. Not that we're going to denigrate our watershed. We're going to work to enhance it, preserve it, and make sure. Listen, if, if there is any chance that this fish is going to damage this fishery, harm these fish, the Army Corps of Engineers is not going to give us a permit. And, and you right. can rest assured that we, having spent over $800 million on this project, that that's the very first thing that we looked at was fisheries. Because when we bought this project, having operated on the west coast of North America for most of our lives, we understand fisheries issues are preeminent. The very first thing we went in and looked at, the very first thing we talked to people about, what's the most important thing to you, we asked the villagers. And they said the fish. And we said, then it has to be the most important thing for us. It's the first thing we study. And we put $150 million into environmental baseline studies, predominantly focused on fisheries issues. And we've had, we had Anglo, we had Rio and Anglo come in. Rio invested $200 million. Anglo invested $585 million. Do you think those companies would have invested more than $5 million without answering the fish question? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. They all came in and looked at it and looked at the physical, chemical uh, nature of of this and said, this mine can be built and, and it will not impact those fisheries. And and the unfortunate right. part is is the the anti-pebble people um, are not held to the same standard we are. They can just say, well, you're going to destroy the fishery. And, and scare the hell out of everybody. And that's correct. I don't blame I don't blame locals for being having anxiety over it because they've been told, they've been scared. And and they say, well why take a chance? What's in it for me to take that chance? So that's why we've changed the size, scale and how we're going about operating this. It's a finite mine life. It's a 20-year permit. We will not get an extension to that 20-year permit if if we do anything to those fish. So, and we know that. I mean, you know, the anti-pebble crowd says, "Oh, well, these guys are just trying to do this," and you know, their favorite term is the "camel's nose under the under the tarp of the tent." Well, listen, guys, a- absolutely, we're not denying that. And and if if we if we as the camel do anything wrong then you're not going to let us in the tent. We're not going to go past 20 years. Anything we want to do would have to be repermitted. We're doing exactly what we we thought you said we should be doing. So um right, you know, that that's where we're at. Yeah, and you and you and I you and I both were, were from the northwest, uh, you know, whether it's uh, British Columbia or you know, western northwestern United States. I'm I'm from Oregon and and uh, knowing that uh Seen, seen a number of hydro projects and, and even being involved within a number of hydro projects on some river systems in the in Oregon. 
uh, we see we, we deal with these these fish uh, salmon issues all the time and uh, whether it's uh, fixing up a dam or, or putting in a, uh, a fish ladder or uh, sometimes we even see that uh, on some of these river systems that uh, there's a natural barrier there's a, a waterfall and guess what guys the salmon can't jump 200 feet and get it get up into nope. the next into the next stream and further to that too as you know in the mountains uh, these these rivers and streams get very very small. They all contribute to one larger river that flows downhill, and at the very very heights of these areas, there is uh, very very little uh, uh, issues that need to be dealt with uh, at these levels. And so I think that uh, a lot of folks you know see this stuff coming from a city. They've never been in the mountains or even seen uh, remote remote states like Alaska in their lives, but they have this opinion. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of my favorite lines is one of the guys from First Quantum. He, he likes to point to these large office towers and say, that's just a mine upside down if you want to know what the impacts look like. That's right. Yep. Yeah, that's To, to all that the urban, dwell, urban dwelling friends, yes. I mean, if you, 90% of what's above the ground used to be below the ground. Right. So the mainstream media seems to hold many misunderstandings about Pebble. The mainstream media and many environmental groups still don't seem to understand much about Pebble, the actual location relative to sensitive waterways, wildlife habitat, ecosystems, or even the high-level engineering and science behind the project design. Yet folks seem to take an uneducated negative position against pr the project, perhaps because they are too lazy or, or unwilling to take the time to understand the complex nature of a mining project. So people are consumers. They buy iPhones, they buy electric cars, they order salmon fillets, they buy cosmetics, they use computers, they enjoy modern infrastructure like good roads, power grids, internet, clean water. The, they enjoy these things while knowing full well that the risks that come when you get in the car or hop in an airplane to travel, they know the risk of not having these conveniences at their hands. There is a level of trust that you have when you let an, a pilot of an aircraft transport you from point A to point B. People trust that there will be a salmon fillet at the grocery store tomorrow. People trust that they will get good care when they need a hospital. So the building blocks of this basic relationship and modern advancements we all enjoy literally every day are the result of harvesting natural resources, whether it's strawberries or uranium. So if you don't agree, then you shouldn't buy a ULED TV. You shouldn't use a smartphone. You shouldn't drive an electric car or even have a car at all. You shouldn't even use the power grid. So wind, solar, coal, nuclear, hydro, you name it, everything requires the use of natural resources to sustain modern life. So, Ron, to get to the point, uh, what are the common misconceptions of Pebble that people need to be corrected in their thinking? And tell us what Northern Dynasty is doing leading the way to a responsible and sustainable mine design that mitigates risk. So you're right. There's, there is, uh, I call it a disconnect. There's a huge disconnect between um, the, the majority of the population and, and their understanding of where everything comes from. Uh, one of my favorite lines is, do you know where electricity comes from or do you simply think it comes from a hole in the wall? You know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that, that, you know, in this modern world, um, we just, by far and away, too many people are not interested in understanding where things come from. I mean, I, I get this out of a lot of people veganism and vegetarianism, at least those people ha understand something about the source. The majority of people, they go eat those fillets and they go eat the salmon and all the rest and, and 
they don't want to know about it. They don't want to know about where, you know, lithium comes from for, for Tesla batteries or, or where even glass comes from. So on, on Pebble, we have a huge outreach pro- program in Alaska that I think has become very successful and that was well demonstrated during this last election, um, the, the midterm election. When we, we got out there on the street talking to small groups one-on-one, face-to-face with people. People, I mean, too, there's too much advertising today and, and people discount advertising. You know, they and, and on top of that, um, it's well established that in, in print media and electronic media, negative news sells at a ratio of 10 times what positive news. People seem to be attracted to negative news. They're not attracted to positive news. So if you're running a website and you're running only positive news, you're not going to generate much revenue off of advertising. So you flip to negative. And, and you look at, the, at, at our news media. It's, it's how often do you get a positive story? It's negative. And so when we were doing polling in Alaska about um, people's views on Pebble, the one thing came loud and clear. People were sick and tired about hearing about Pebble in the newspaper, on radio, and on TV. And so Tom devised this process where he hired a team and made sure that team was well-informed and sent them out into the communities. We, we meet with groups of school teachers, um, you know, community business groups. Uh, we'll do one-on-ones with people. And it, it really has made a substantial difference. And, and so what this does, it, and also outreach in the Native communities. A lot of people believe that if a Native community is against you, that there's some scientific basis for that. And so they, they, they grasp onto that. So when the uh, Bristol Bay Native community is, is anti-pebble, um, people say, oh, well, that's, that's good enough for me. If they listen to the communities around the lakes and, and a- the APCs, the, the New Halens, the, um, the Iliamna villages, um, because we've done a lot of outreach in those communities, they are turning their opinions around and people are starting to listen to that. Um, we do a lot of community communications. I think that's been probably our biggest key. Then we did, the next level was to produce a pamphlet that said, basically, here's what you've heard about Pebble and here's the reality about that particular point. And, and we've tried to make it concise, less than 10 pages long. It was a big mailer. I think we sent out about 200,000 of them in Alaska. And, and we're getting responses back from people that say, you know, I used to be anti-Pebble, but I've come to understand the facts about this over the last six months. And I believe Pebble is something that the state of Alaska must evaluate and determine how we best develop this. We've never said, give us a permit. We've never said that. We need to earn that permit. The only way we earn that permit is by putting ourselves through, or the Army Corps of Engineers, putting us through the most rigorous permitting process in the world today. And that's the 404 process. 
I don't understand how an announcer on a major television broadcast can get up and say that Pebble should be stopped and shouldn't go through the 404 process. The the um, NRDC, Natural Resource Defense Council, on their own website, they say that the the 404 legislation is the Magna Carta of environmental assessment worldwide. How do they adopt a position that denies Pebble the right to go through that process? It's simply hypocritical. And and I think that the CNNs of the world um, who adopt that kind of a position are saying, we can't sell a positive story on Pebble. We can't sell that it's going to go through permitting the most rigorous. We can't tell the world that that, that the United States of America has the most rigorous permitting uh, system in the world. We have to tell them something negative because that's how we'll get them to watch us. But we are being dedicated, a diligent effort. It's not without expense. We've got to go through this. And, and we are committed to that that process. I mean, you know us. I've been at this a long time. I know that that if I can get to somebody face-to-face and I can sit down and talk to them like this, I can convince them that, that I, I'm not asking you, give me a permit. I'm simply saying, let us go before the most rigorous permitting process in the world up against the world's best engineers in the world, the Army Corps of Engineers and the contractors they hire, to demonstrate and prove to them that we can protect the environment, that we can protect the fish, that we will not damage that fishery, and that we will develop this mine in the most responsible possible way, and it will, and we will share those benefits. It will have, no question, it's going to have a footprint. It's going to have an impact. You can't dig a hole in the ground and not have that. But its benefits far outweigh that aspect of it. And at the end of the day, we won't leave a mess. We'll clean it up. Right. And I, I don't think people look at even one thread of evidence, but form an opinion just because it was on prime time. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. And it's uh, certainly interesting, the uh, the debacle that we have with, with some of the, the mainstream and, and some of the public out there. Uh, the good thing is, luckily, we still have agencies and we still have regulatory groups, whether it's the EPA or, a, uh, you know, a FERC or a U.S. Army Corps uh, that look at this stuff and have an objective opinion. So that's uh, and that's all. That's all. That's all we're asking, and that's all, and that's right. what every regulator should be. I mean, when when the EPA launched launched their preemptive initiative, that was a demonstration that they were biased. They were no longer an unbiased regulator, and that, and that's the worst thing. That that now you become a third world country. If if you're bureaucracy, your government becomes uh, proactive, you become a DRC. You become a Mongolia. You become an Indonesia. Yep. Yeah, that's right. From from red tape to red flags yet again. Um, So, Ron, this is going to wrap up uh, part one. I appreciate uh, you coming on and chatting with us, and uh, we'll get started with part two soon. Well, thanks for the opportunity to explore Pebble with your your audience, uh, and I look forward to uh, to uh, concluding that in uh, part two of the discussion.